So, what, John, what, and uh, so what have you been up to this week? Well, I, I had a really fantastic time in the Robin 2. In, uh, it's not Wolverhampton. Did I talk about this last week, Dave Hill? No. Good, fine. <laughs> so, really guessed it. Dave so Hill from Slade? Wilston, yeah, Wolverhampton, near Wolverhampton. Not, what, not in Wolverhampton, mm. very much not. Because uh, they have different accents, apparently. But anyway, he was he was great <laughs> on stage with Mike Reed, uh, he of uh, Radio One fame, and you asking, Calypso asking him <laughs> questions about his life. Uh-huh. So, Dave, what was it like recording the world's best-selling Christmas single in New York in 1973 in the heat? <laughs> and Dave was it was it was they were sort of perched slightly awkwardly on stools, uh, but it was it was great. And and then he played he played uh, some of the you know the less uh, raucous late hits. He started off with um, their first, their first number one, which was "Cause um, I Love You" uh, or "Cause I Love You." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they did, you know, "Every Day" and uh, "Far, Far Away," and it was really good, really great, really sort of interesting. The, the new Noddy, the guy from the band, who's called really good um, singer and guitarist, called uh, John Berry was there so Dave they played they were, it's an acoustic set unplugged basically Slade unbelievably Slade unplugged sort of so that was fun. I like I like in publishing well, terms funnily enough I like the, I like the uh, lots of the pop stars uh, 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 certainly of that generation the good thing about them if you're doing a book with them is that they are hard workers they really are they're used to being drilled on the road and, in the 60s and, and 70s absolutely right? yeah. you cannot stop Dave talking I mean he's brilliant he's a very 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 funny storyteller um, and uh, he told some great cracking stories, but the book, book, the book is, is doing well. But um, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered in the hallway of a mysteriously shuttered up grand house in a small village in the Cotswolds, having shinned over the imposing garden walls <laughs> and entered via an unlocked French window. So good. Please don't <laughs> tell the people at Unbound, our sponsor. The website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously and other books. And joining us today are Alice Stevenson. Hello, Alice Stevenson. Hello. And Eleanor Cook. Hello, Eleanor Cook. Hello. Eleanor is a playwright who won the George Devine Award 2013 for Most Promising Playwright. The judges were most perceptive as Eleanor's most recent work, an adaptation of Ibsen's The Lady of the Sea, was staged at the Donmar Warehouse earlier this year. Wow. While yeah. Alice is an author and illustrator, educator and slow traveller. Her books, Ways to See Great Britain and Ways to Walk in London, showcase her beautiful drawings and have discovered a new way to look at landscapes, both urban and rural. Right up my country lane. That is right <laughs> up your it is. I love uh, this book. rambling. <laughs> I, I bought it under my own steam. <laughs> Did you? Off your excellent website, and it all came beautifully wrapped. It was very the whole experience. I have to say was very, very, and the book does not disappoint. It. I absolutely love it. I want to go and explore a lot of these places. Some I know, some I've never heard of. Good. Which is all you want from a book. Excellent. Well, all I want from a book. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the book Alice and Eleanor are in to talk about today is Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne Jones. And I'm not going to tell you anything about Fire and Hemlock or Diana Wynne-Jones until we get started. But there's so much to say. Um, we're going to try and rattle through the first bit so we have plenty of time to really, to really dig into it. Um, so I, will, I think I'll ask you, John. All oh, right, fine. John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading a, a novel, American novel, by Jasmine Ward called Sing, Unburied Sing, a novel that has uh, recently won the National Book Award. 
harrowingly beautiful uh, novel set in Mississippi, um, the, the Mississippi coast. And it's a story of a family, uh, Leone, who is a mother and drug addict, leading a pretty shonky life living with her parents, who are kind of long-suffering and kind of sort of interesting. They got in, or Everybody in the book has got interesting backstories. But her husband, who is, she's black and he's white, she's, he's being led out of uh, the Louisiana State Penitentiary and she is driving to pick him up with her 13-year-old son, Jojo, and her daughter, Michaela. And the book is narrated um, by Jojo, the son, and Leone, and also a at least one ghost, Richie, who is a, a former inmate of uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's a kind of a road movie. They're mm. going back. They pick up Michael, the husband, and come back home. It's 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 bleak uh, at, by turns. It's the, the language is incredibly Faulknerianly rich. I'll read a little bit to give you a. F- and uh, I mean the journey. You know, you can freight it with what a whatever metaphors you want. It's there's a sense of it going. It's the journey back to the penitentiary is a sort of journey back into mm-hmm. uh, American history. Into there's a lot of horrific tales of slavery, murder. Um, it's it's it's. Who, it's, it, who does it remind you of? Well, <laughs> it's kind of like a. I mean, you can't really get away in this. In this, it's not really a genre, but writing about slavery mm. and not be reminded of, uh, you know, a book that we, you and I both loved and felt Indeed. aggrieved that the Underground Railroad was not on mm-hmm. the Booker long list. Seems still seems to me a very peculiar omission. But it also because of its use of ghosts and the idea of people that from the past kind of Leone I mean one of the things that is sort of strong is Leone can see the ghost of her brother who was murdered by a friend of her husband's but given her brother is sort of there she can see him and Jojo is haunted by Richie who's the ghost of this boy that was that was basically in the end put in jail for stealing meat I'm getting um, flavours of Lincoln in the Boulder yeah what you're saying yeah yeah it's kind of that's yeah I mean I, you know, it's one of those books. I enjoyed it, but I like, I like the full-on, florid, yeah, beautiful. Uh, I'll read you a, a kind of a passage that gives you a, a sense of it. Some people might feel it's, you know, that the darkness of the story is maybe obscured by the language. I know some some reviewers have said that, but what do you do? I mean, I think you're trying to tell a very very dark story. I mean, it does feel to me that it's it's again trying to restore both the horror. Of, 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 of America's past but also a kind of a challenge the journey is a sort of you know it isn't, it isn't all darkness there are glimmers of hope particularly in Jojo the young 13 year old who's trying to piece together you know he's got fairly dodgy role model in his, in his own father but he has his, his, his grandfather who is um, and he also has this strange relationship with the boy. I, I really really enjoyed it and I think if you're interested in contemporary American fiction she's kind of floated to pretty close to the very top of the pile mm. of somebody it's not her first novel she's written three novels before and a pretty uh, pretty extraordinary memoir but I, someone to watch I think um, this is uh, this is just a really good example this is Leone the mom on her way back from the she's picked up Michael from the jail and she's dreaming when I wake Michael's rolled all the windows down I've been dreaming for hours, it feels like. Dreaming of being marooned 
on a deflating raft in the middle of the endless reach of the Gulf of Mexico, far out where the fish are bigger than men. I'm not alone in the raft because Jojo and Michaela and Michael are with me and we are elbow to elbow. But the raft must have a hole in it because it deflates. We are all sinking and there are manta rays gliding beneath us and sharks jostling us. I'm trying to keep everyone above water, even as I struggle to stay afloat. I sink below the waves and push Jojo upward so he can stay above the waves and breathe. But then Michaela sinks and I push her up. And Michael sinks, so I shove him up to the air as I sink and struggle. But they won't stay up. They want to sink like stones. I thrust them up towards the surface, to the fractured sky, so they can live. But they keep slipping from my hands. It is so real that I can feel their sodden clothes against my palms. I am failing them. We are all drowning. You know, she does that thing kind of again again you can't get away from the journey as i lay dying you know that investing mm-hmm. this she, this is the you know the, the crack mom you know investing her mm-hmm. with a level mm-hmm. of kind of eloquence and metaphorical kind of uh, esprit that you you know it's not attempting to be naturalistic but i i like that because i think why shouldn't why shouldn't ordinary so-called ordinary characters not not i mean that's surely what's one of the great things that literature yeah, can do is, like is invest yeah. invest ordinary lives with with kind of poetry and insight and this sounds like one of those books that i need to read quite soon before i get to the point where i feel i don't need to read yeah, it because i've heard yeah, too much about yeah, it yeah i mean it's, it's, so it's i i, I, I borrow this say, from I you very actually. very Have impressed you? with it it's you know there it's not it's not it's not a towering you know forever masterpiece but what it is is i think a really really she's she's only going to get become more important as a writer yeah, I yeah. Think. you can sort of feel and it's a big big subject handled well Andy what have you been reading uh, I've been reading uh, a collection of short stories by a writer called Malachi Whitaker oh, yeah. called The Journey Home and Other Stories it's just been published by our friends at Persephone Books and Malachi Whitaker was born in the late 1800s in Bradford she was one of 11 children. Uh, her father was a bookbinder. In the mid-1920s, she started publishing stories in magazines. Uh, she published a collection in 1929, and then three more followed in 1930, 1932, and 1934. And she then wrote another quite peculiar memoir called And So Did I, and that was it. She never wrote anything again. She died in 1976, and you haven't been able to buy any of her stories for 30 years this is the first time any of her stories have been in print and she was very well known in her era she was called famously the Bradford Chekhov (laughs) (laughs) Ian McMillan is a great um, admirer of hers our former guest Ian McMillan and um, so I'd heard about her from him this is the first time I'd ever read her and first of all I really love the stories I'm going to read you a tiny bit from here because I've got something else I want to read you as well but this is from one of the stories called Smoke of the Tide And this really gives you the flavour of it. It starts like this. A fair middle-aged man with a red face and prominent light blue eyes walked out of the door of a pleasant-looking cottage in the high street. The name of the man was Albert Shepherd. He had been born in the cottage which he had just left. Indeed, his father and mother still lived there, although all their children had married and left them. Albert was the youngest, and he had been the most successful. That is to say, in northern standards, he had made a lot of brass. (laughs) 
He was married to a London woman and did not often come home because she could not see the astonishing beauty of the industrial north. <laughs> she thought it was dirty and depressing. The blue-grey landscapes with their design of mill chimneys, Marion called them smokestacks, and nobody knew what she meant. The rolling hills, the mingling of smoke and cloud, the white steam from the dye houses, the cobbled streets and houses of blackened stone, all this meant nothing to Marion. It meant a great deal to Albert Shepherd. He was never fully happy in the South. <laughs> I mean, right, it's, wa- it's wonderful. So right. the stories are set in the North and they're very, there's lots of dialect. That comparison, the Bradford Chekhov, but, but is, transcends the E by gum kind of. It absolutely yeah. is perfectly accurate in terms of both the Bradford and the Chekhov. <laughs> and uh, she really, these stories really reminded me of an author, a writer that I talked about on Backlisted last year, I think. Uh, or no, maybe this, early this year. Dorothy Edwards, anyway, the Welsh yeah, yeah. writer Dorothy Ep- Edwards, from a similar kind of period, she published one novel and one volume of short stories, volume of short stories called Rhapsody, I think. Uh, it was absolutely terrific. Anyway, so this is the first time her stories have been available. This selection was... Uh, chosen by Philip Hensher. There's an introduction by Philip Hensher, who is a great supporter of her work as well. And it has a, an afterword by Valerie Waterhouse. And in the afterword, Valerie Waterhouse mentions a piece that Malachi Whitaker wrote uh, in the late 1930s about the books that she had read growing up called I Could Not Miss a Word of Ryder Haggard. And so this being the modern world... I got in touch with Valerie Waterhouse and said, oh, I really enjoyed this. And you don't, this, this, this piece by Malachi Waterhouse isn't in print. You haven't got a copy you could send me. And she said, yes, I'll send it to you. So I'm going to read you a tiny amount from this piece because if after having heard this, you don't want to go and buy this book, I would be very, very surprised. And I'd also like to thank Valerie Waterhouse for um, sharing this with me. This is the words of Malachi Whitaker writing in 1939 after she had stopped writing short stories. Perhaps it isn't the book, but the feeling of life around one at the moment that makes the whole thing memorable. The books I remember with fondest love were mostly discovered in my teens. I was supposed to stay at home and help my mother with the housework. To this day, I cannot make a bed. (laughs) A bed, to me, anybody's bed, was merely a place on which to fling myself and a story. I had no sense of honour. I would promise to work as heartily as I do today and with the same result. The whole thing flies out of my head as soon as a book gets in my hand. She goes on to say, for instance, 16 is the ideal age to read the Decameron. (laughs) I have a copy in the house growing old and musty and forbidding looking so that by the time the children are 16 they will find it innocently and yet hide it under the bedclothes as I did feeling there are things in it that no parent should see and that is true (laughs) I reread it myself the other day but the first thrill is gone the little band of people flying from the plague idling in their lovely garden telling not so witty stories can't hold the whole of my interest as it did in 1911 And then, John, she goes on to talk about, and this is the bit I really, I just thought this is so wonderful. She she devotes a paragraph to George Gissing. Brilliant. Right, now, George Gissing, author of New Grub Street and many other lesser well-known books. Listen to this. This is one of those paragraphs you think, okay, this person is a real writer. There was nothing wrong with Gissing. His world was an unhappy one to a child, 
but it was a true one. New Grub Street, the unclassed, workers in the dawn, but I read all of Gissing. I don't know where he lived, for I never look anything up, but if I'm walking in Bloomsbury at night and the British Museum looms through the fog, and the lamps seem to flicker, and there is the sound of a horse's hooves on the road. I always think that the dim, weary figure letting itself into some dark doorway may be Gissing's ghost. (laughs) And I pray that his fire may be burning red, and not be just a sad, black pretense of a fire, so that he can get on with his work this night, and stop now and then to warm his pen-stiffened hands, and perhaps even make himself a hot drink before the cold dawn comes in through the curtains. But no... He will forget, and the fire will go out, and the lamp will smoke, and he will never notice until it's too late. <laughs> now, that's an exclusive for, for, the, for, for, for the first time since it was published in the Bradford Mercury in 1939, <laughs> listeners. Anyway, that book is called The Journey Home and Other Stories by Malachi Whitaker. It's published by Persephone. I find it hard to believe that anyone who listens regularly to this podcast wouldn't absolutely love it. So, that said... We are now going to talk for a while about Diana Wynne-Jones and her novel, Fire and Hemlock. There is a key fact that I haven't revealed about our guests, which will possibly come to light when I ask this (laughs) next question. Alice and or Eleanor, where were you, what were you doing when you first encountered the novel Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne-Jones? I think you should start, yeah. Okay, um, so uh, this is Eleanor speaking. I went to boarding school... And all my friends were always getting parcels and packages. And I felt a bit aggrieved that I wasn't getting any parcels. So I basically ordered my mum to send me a parcel, (laughs) (laughs) please. And um, she did so. And uh, she sent me a package of books, which is quite prescient considering the book that was contained within the parcel. Um, I don't remember what the other two were, but one of them... <laughs> you, really? One of them was I'm Fire and Hemlock. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Right. Yeah, but one of them well, was Fire and Hemlock. When, when are we talking about, Ruff? We can, uh, we can try and guess so what this one of these. This was 1993. I was oh, 11. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> I read this book. <laughs> it could have been anything, though. John. Yeah, I your, like it wouldn't could have been a Philippa Pierce. John's yeah. head it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been something of that time, I don't think. No, it, it was it was a classic, I think. It would have been a classic. Yeah. This was the wild card. The Fire and Hemlock was the wild card. That's quite interesting though, because this Fire and Hemlock reading in Fire and Hemlock is a big thing yeah. for Polly yeah, the Hero. Absolutely, right? yeah, absolutely. Anyway, go on, I interrupted you. Yeah, so I st- I knew nothing about it, I started reading it. A teacher nicked it off me because I left it in a classroom and she said, Oh, you left it and I've started reading it so you can't have it back until I finished it um, so I waited with bated breath finally how far, how far were you through? oh I was at like a crucial bit yeah I was like three quarters of the way through oh damn her um, so uh, so I finally got it back but it sort of meant that the whole uh, process of reading this book felt really extended and epic and um, finishing it uh, age 11 I think I've continued to read it pretty much every year since then and this book has pretty much made it into I think everything I've ever written all of my plays um one of my plays is kind of a reworking of the Tam Lynn myth as well which I'm sure we'll go on to discuss but Alice can explain how she got hold of her copy well I think I was recommended Far and Hemlock by you but I I, as I said to you today and I don't think you remember but I think it was either in person or like a a long phone conversation. But before I read it, you actually 
described and told me the story of it in great depth probably probably took about two hours like it wasn't it wasn't a summary like I knew every scene I don't remember this at all yeah like you you so much summarised it well Word for word, I think you were so enthusiastic that you just so. But you just to clarify, like, you have known one another since you were. Oh yeah, 11. yeah. That's the crucial fact. No, no since we... we're one, one and a half. Like, yeah. Very okay. Right. Yeah. So you all your lives, but you know, yeah, exactly. all our lives. So I lent it to you. No, I think you might have. No, I think I got it from the school library. Okay. Because um, my school library had a very good Diana Wynne Jones selection. So, and I think. I read it on holiday when I was about 11, on a family holiday, and um, I I was very excited for you to finish it. I'm fascinated to think what you made of it at 11. I mean, Polly is 10 at the beginning of the book, but it's... It's a really complex. Yeah. We should um, just say this: this book was published in the mid '80s, and it's published as in in what would have been the teen bracket then, and really? would yeah. probably be young adult now. Uh, but it's teen in the same way that Redshift by Alan Garner's teen, and we will come back round to Redshift, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read it. Well, we both read it very differently now. I think when. I was younger, it was the sort of mystery and the kind of love story of it that really grabbed me, which now is sort of troubling to think of a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it, I mean, that's a whole other thing we'll probably get well, on to. Uh, almost certainly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, go on, no, you go. <laughs> yeah. And I think Polly Whitaker herself, the protagonist, who is just... I, I struggle to think of a, a female character in a book for children as complex Lyra Balacqua maybe oh I don't know we were talking about Lyra the other day and saying that we felt that Lyra maybe falls into that kind of Lyra always seems to know what to do um, she's very kind of naturally rebellious whereas Polly is much more watchful she's careful yeah. she's always she's she's very good at reading situations um, she's always trying to kind of protect the people around her and she's very ordinary and that feeling um yeah, reading it at that age, I think, reading a character of, of basically the same age as we were when we read it, who felt really raw, really real, was just so refreshing. Um, so I'm going to read the blurb on the back of my 1990 edition, which we double-checked and is the same as... We should just say, in fact, Eleanor's copy is your school's copy. Yeah, it's my contraband... <laughs> hang on, hang on. You, you, the teacher stole it from you. Right? You so, sent it to Alice and then... It... I don't know where the original one is, but I was clearly very upset about this because I've stolen a copy not, from... Listen, uh, we're not condoning library theft, but let's be honest, we've all But yeah, there is the stamp here. Um, it's, a, it's a crime in plain sight. If any librarians of Wiltshire schools are listening, you may want to go and check your shelves. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's a contraband copy. Anyway, the, the, so they retained the, the the blurb. I don't know what the well. You can tell me what the blurb on that recent edition is. But here we go. Fire and Hemlock. Halloween nine years ago, she gate crashed a funeral party at the big house. She met Tom Lynn for the first time, and he gave her the strange photograph of the hemlock fa- flowers and the fire. But what has happened in the years between? Why has Polly erased Tom from her own mind and the rest of the world as well? How could she have forgotten him when he had meant so much to her? A gripping story of intrigue, sorcery and love from an incomparable storyteller. 
Now, we, through several running jokes on Batlisted, have somewhat devalued the term storyteller, which whenever we do, we're now faced with it, I feel bad about. The thing about this book was, uh, is that um, Diana Wynne-Jones is tremendously good at doing a thing that many writers aren't, which is telling you a story which feels inevitable while at the same time you have no idea what is going to happen on the next page, yeah. right? And this, this book unfolds in a way that I found totally fascinating because, as ever with books that I like, it didn't seem to be following any rules. Uh, we'll talk particularly about the last 30 pages of the book because you have both read it several mm. times. I've only read it once. What did you think, John? You've not read it before. No, I hadn't read it before. I hadn't read any Diana Wynne-Jones, but I always, you know, she was one of those writers who's absolutely been on my list, largely because of the Howl's Moving Castle uh, Studio yeah. Ghibli movie, which is one of my was one of my boys' favourites as they were growing up, and I loved. But I guess the thing I loved about the movie is sort of what's here in the book is I, it's... Again, that strange feeling of not quite knowing where you are, except an amazingly strong uh, character in Polly. And there's a a pretty brilliant cast of supporting characters, Mm. her granny in particular, her parents. There's a a kind of a divorce. I mean, the odd thing about this book is, on one level, it's it's a classic, in the same way as, say... You know, Curious Incident is about about a family breakup. It's about a family where the mother and father decide, that, or the mother certainly decides that she doesn't want to live with the husband, and it's difficult for the kid to. So there's fa- basic level family breakdown, but then there's this other mythic structure that's going on, mm. and this strange, appealing but not altogether uh, easy to, to to relate to character Tom, who uh, she forms a a kind of a connection with which is kind of the story of the book. And then obviously that we'll come on to the sort of the, 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 the Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lin sort of structures. What I felt a lot was when I was reading, God, I wish I'd discovered this when I was, you know, 11. Yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, I was 11, 11 years before this book was written. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it's that, it does feel to me that, you know, you, you, in the great tradition of, you know, that includes... Alan Garner and Philippa Pierce and Susan Cooper. Yeah. Of, mm. um, so, yeah. And I, it certainly makes me think I want to explore more Diana Wynne-Jones because I, in fact, I, I probably do I probably do want to reread it because I, I, think, I think it's, you know, you read it once usually for the story. Would one of you like to, uh, I don't know if one of you, has one of you got a bit with one of the awful parents? I've got I've got the bit when she realises about <laughs> Bristol that she's not actually welcome. <laughs> oh, that's, we should, yeah? we should give, give a bit of background okay. to that because it's 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 she's left her her mum has basically blamed her for the breakdown of her relationships. Yeah. Her mother's sort of paranoid and thinks um, her new lodger, who she sort of. Had sort of put all her hopes on is now being secretive. She's obsessed with people. The, yeah. the husband was secretive, and now the yeah. lodger's being secretive, and it's sort yeah. of Polly's fault. And um, she sort of basically throws Polly out, blames Polly for this. Age about thirteen, yeah, and sends her to live with her father, but basically in Bristol, and basically doesn't really tell. I mean, there's obviously some miscommunication. Polly turns up thinking she's going there to live and soon realises that they think she's just come to stay. And she is, you know, it's, it's, it's the most hard... I think it's... Reading it now, it's 
to me the most sort of upsetting but also the most effective part of the book in a way okay she was so bleached through by her uneasiness that she found it hard to eat even the small nut cutlet joanna cooked for supper dad was now talking feverishly neither polly nor joanna laughed at his jokes joanna simply got up and went to fetch the sweet she came back and set a glass of yoghurt in front of Polly. Polly, she said, without wanting to pry, is there any chance of you telling us how long this visit of yours is going to go on? Reg and I do have to go out tomorrow night as it happens. Shame bleached Polly right through. She knew now for certain that Dad had not told Joanna. He had simply hoped or made himself believe that Joanna would take to Polly and Joanna hadn't. Oh, that's all right, she said brightly, without even having to think. I'm going tomorrow morning. What time train? Joanna asked almost eagerly. Polly glanced through her hair at her father. There was profound and utter relief on his face. Ten o'clock, she invented. She was drowning Mm. in bleach. That look on Dad's face. Mum had been right about him after all. Oh, very good. Very good. One of the things that I really loved about this book, I felt Diana Wynne Jones had set herself an ambitious task, which Mm. she had successfully fulfilled, which was to map adolescence. So, so, so the character of Polly, we meet her when she is ten, and we leave her when she is nineteen. And although there's a gap in the middle, nonetheless, there is a year-on-year change in her character, which felt very. um, accurate, familiar to me in terms of that sort of uh, not. It's not so much the going through a breakup; it's the falling in and out of of relationships, uh, relationships with other girls and friendships. Nina, she starts. She's sort of a bit large, kind of spaniel-like, kind of overweight, yeah. and ends up being a kind of minx vamp, if yeah. not a bitch. Mm. Oh. But- but also, it's it's funny the way also, you know, Nina kind of has the sort of privilege of being able to be rebellious because she's sort of from... Yeah, it's very, like, exactly. And if Nina had narrated this book, who and I feel like the Nina character does, does narrate a lot of books aimed yeah. at children that kind of naturally very rebellious and confident and brash, hmm. it would be a less interesting book. Yeah. I think. Yes, I think yeah, that's I mean, a fair point. I can't, I can't help thinking of Mary Cat in. Um, yeah, we always lived. That. We always lived in the castle. We did. We, we we've always lived in the castle oh, a few yeah. weeks ago. Who's who's another sort of uh, circumstance dictate in the way same way as Polly dictates that she has to cope and deal and find a strategy. And I, I mean, but also but I think the, Polly's such. A, I think Polly is really. But like we have always lived in the castle, the narrative of the book is driven partly by the external events, but by the psychological and emotional development of the protagonist. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's what you... That seems to me what's so um, fascinating about this book. Mind as well. mm-hmm. Yes, Garden, a long way from Verona as well. Yeah. And this sort of fantasy world and the real world are interwoven, I think, so well in this book. Yeah. Like, so cleverly. There are... You know, it. it's so difficult to sort of tell where one starts and one begins yeah. in a way and the emotion and there's sort of equal kind of emotional truth in both 
sides of it which I think is really clever because I think you could almost have the book without the fantasy element and it would still work but it wouldn't be the same because almost through the fantasy you can kind of really explore the the emotions and the feelings well we've got we've got a clip here of um Dinah Jones talking this is um she's talking here about the book stroke film that you mentioned John Howl's Moving Castle but she's also talking about things in her work which are relevant to what you were saying Alice so let's hear that now I was um overwhelmed actually I thought it was wonderful it was it was rich and strange <laughs> full of the most beautiful animation and uh I uh, I was just you know sort of thrown back in my seat with amazement because I've loved his work for about 20 years now uh, long before I knew he was going to make a film of mine. And when we met the other night, we discovered, at least I discovered, that he understood my books in, in a way that nobody else has ever done. It really was quite striking. And we, we had, through an interpreter, a very long and interesting conversation about this. You know, it is um, a story, as I wrote it, and as it occurs also in the film about uh, if you love someone enough, all sorts of extraordinary other things happen in, in your surroundings as well. And you can achieve great things, even if the world falls to pieces around you, you know? And uh, I, I think both, uh, both of us seem to be on the same track there, me and Mr. Miyazaki. See, I think that's such a, that last thing that she says there about, about even if the world is falling apart love can allow you to do great things. That's sort of one of the things that Fire and Hemlock is about. Mm -hmm. But also, Diana Wynne-Jones had a particularly miserable childhood. Yeah. Very hard knowing that, not to read this book as a kind of autobiographical, at least in terms of her, the relationship to the, the, the really selfish mother and father. Mm. Yeah. Well, she had these parents um, who were, uh, I think progressive educators yeah. um, and um, child abusers slash child abusers <laughs> uh, although it's interesting because I was listening um, to an uh, essay that her son Colin Burrow wrote um, mm. in which he says he suggests that perhaps the version of her childhood that Diana Wynne-Jones has has elaborated on is perhaps slightly steeped in exaggeration but nonetheless um, the story goes that her parents um, would make her and her two sisters um, go and sleep in a shed. Um, yeah, unheated. Unheated. And um, the dad would give them Arthur Ransom books, uh, but one a year. <laughs> <laughs> he bought a complete set of yeah. Arthur Ransom, yeah. but he decided to get the value for money by only giving them Jesus. one volume. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and mean, so, I love Arthur Ransom, but that's, that's, you, you'd get to know that book pretty well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so this is apparently where Diana um, began storytelling because yeah. she was forced to entertain her younger siblings. Yeah. The other thing I, I, I'd like to say about Diana Wynne-Jones um, is that as a writer... So she was born in 1934. She studied English at Oxford. She attended lectures by C.S. Lewis and... Tolkien, and it was reading Lord of the Rings, which was one of the things that spurred her on to writing. And she f publishes her first novel in 1970, when she was 36. It's a novel for adults. And 
Then she has a big hit in the mid-70s with a book called, a novel called Charmed Life. And Charmed Life, which I read this week, I could barely concentrate. It's a really great book, but I could barely concentrate on it because of how similar it is. And I'm not the first person to say this. Thousands of people have said it. How similar it is to the first Harry Potter mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, It is, yeah. It is at, at remarkable. Yeah. And Diana Wynne-Jones... Diana Wynne-Jones said... I, it was on the record as saying, I think J.K. Rowling probably read Charmed mm-hmm. Life when she was a child. I mean, and it kind of sung it. Yeah. ingested it. And yeah. once books are out there, they belong yeah. to everyone. But I, I, have a, I, have, I, have some, I can elaborate on this slightly because... Uh, my wife Tina uh, worked with Diana Wynne Jones oh, wow. in the early noughties when um, her backlist, a lot of her books in the 80s were out of print. Yeah. Mm. She found it increasingly difficult to get published. And in fact, when Fire and Hemlock was published, she was not Flavour of the Month at all. Oh, wow. What happens is Harry Potter is a phenomenal hit. Okay. And our pals at HarperCollins look around for what something, anything <laughs> yeah. that has young wizards in it. <laughs> and, and they buy her backlist. And, and her backlist is re-promoted. And she finds whole new generations of readers. And then Howl's Moving Castle comes along. So she's back. And Tina, I was asking Tina this morning about Diana, what she remembered about Diana Wynne-Jones. And she said, well, first of all, what I remember about Diana Wynne-Jones is uh, she likes a cigarette. That's the first thing. <laughs> and the second thing I remember about her is she was the most easygoing author I've ever worked with. Oh, I'm so glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> because, because she'd seen it and she'd been through it. It's and a, she yeah. understood that she was, she was one of those writers who loved writing. What she wanted yeah. was paper and pens and everything else. The fact that another author had come along who'd created this big market that hadn't been there five years earlier or was perceived not to have been there, great. Fine, my books are back out there, you know. But I, I think is fantastic. Yeah. And she, so she was enjoying having another go round. That's nice to hear. It's, it, that's that sort of, but that kind of wisdom I feel is yeah. is absolutely there in the book at every turn. Um, you know, I, and funny the bits of funny. So I, funny. I love this um, about Three Musketeers by Dumas. She wondered why Alexandre was spelled wrong. <laughs> But she'd seen the cartoon of the Three Musketeers. She thanked the librarian and took the book home to Granny's. It was difficult. (laughs) Half the time she was not sure what was going on or why everyone lived in hotels. It it was full of conversations where you could not tell which person was speaking. But Polly loved it even so. From the very beginning, when D'Artagnan appears on his yellow horse, she was utterly captivated. She loved huge Portos and the elegant Aramis, but Athos was the one she liked best. Oddly enough, despite the yellow horse and the fact that D'Artagnan was long and thin, she knew Athos was the one who was most like Mr. Lind. It's just, it's, I love that idea of, of, of reading. that. We've all been that child, reading mm. a book that's mm. probably too difficult for us, but you kind of persevere. Absolutely. Should I read this? Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. So, in the midst of her friendship with Tom Lin, they've concocted uh, these two characters called Hero and Tan Cool. Um, and she lovingly constructs a narrative which she proudly sends to Tom Lin. Polly finished her huge narrative during the summer term. The day after she had finished it, <laughs> she went round with the oddest mixture of feelings pride at having got it done, sick of the sight of it and glad it was over, and completely lost without it. By the evening, Lost Without It came out on top, 
and she began to make a careful copy in her best writing. The longer she spent copying, the more she admired it. Some parts were really good. <laughs> the part, in particular, where Tan Cool is wounded in the shoulder and Hero has to dress the wound. She strips off Tan Cool's armour and sees the smooth, powerful muscles rippling under the silken skin of his back. Wonderful! Polly went round whispering it admiringly to herself, the silken skin of his back. She was still wonderfully pleased with that bit when she finished copying it at last. Oh, well done. Polly packed it in a vast envelope addressed to Anne, with a note asking her to give it to Tom. Then she waited for signs of applause and admiration from Mr Lynn. Nothing happened for quite a while, and when it did, it was clear Mr Lynn felt strongly on the matter. He had risked writing himself. Maybe this was because he was far away, or maybe not. The postcard was from New York. It had two words written on it. Sentimental drivel. (laughs) (laughs) The brilliant thing thing is, like many of the books that we like on on Backlisted, but it's a book about reading and writing. You know, you have have Polly discovering how to write in the course. This is why I mean it's such a clever book in terms of the development of the character, right? Absolutely. The kind of the passage of observation of things that are happening and the way that gets transformed in, by story into kind of into fairy tale and you know the, the ending of the book we've, we've got other things to talk about is you're, I'm thinking I can't, I'm not sure can I yes I can I, I, I can I, I can didn't, let this author take me take me to I, the, I I'm not sure I understood the ending no I, 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 in fact, I know I didn't understand the ending. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, I got, yeah. but you've read it lots of times so over a, a long period. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, so enlighten me. Um, I mean, I take something different from the ending every time yeah. I read it. I think, and I think so much of it That's is about it's good, exactly. <laughs> and I love the kind of ambiguity of yeah. it, yeah. and so much of, of uh, about Polly is her intuition and her instinctiveness. And it seems to me that the ending of this book is an absolute celebration of divorcing yourself from logic and absolutely following your instincts and it has that kind of wonderful dreamlike quality yeah it's a wonderful thing she says two sides to nowhere Polly thought one really was a dead end the other was the void that lay before you when you were making something new out of ideas no one else had quite had before yeah yeah. Mm. so 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 Diana Wynne-Jones died in um 2011 and after she died, I just want to read you something that um, her great supporter, Neil Gaiman, wrote about her. And I think this is relevant to what we were talking about, her career and the strengths in her writing. He said, uh, and this is from a book called Reflections. It's the introduction of a book called Reflections on the Magic of Writing, which is a collection of her nonfiction pieces. Neil Gaiman said, I'm baffled that Diana did not receive the awards and medals that should have been hers. No Carnegie Medal for a start, although she was twice a runner-up for it. There was a decade during which she published some of the most important pieces of children's fiction to come out of the UK. Archer's Goon, Dog's Body, Fire and Hemlock, the Crestomancy books. These were books that should have been acknowledged as they came out as game changers and simply weren't. The readers knew, but they were, for the most part, young. I suspect that there were three things against Diana and the medals. (laughs) Firstly, she made it look easy. Much too easy. Like the best jugglers or slack rope walkers, it looked so natural that the reader couldn't see her working and assumed that the writing process really was that simple, that natural, and that Diana's works were written without thought or effort or were found objects, like beautiful rocks uncrafted by human hand. Yeah. Second, she was unfashionable. 
You can learn from some of the essays in this volume just how unfashionable she was, as she describes the prescriptive books that were fashionable, particularly with teachers and those who published and bought books for young readers from the 1970s until the 1990s. Books in which the circumstances of the protagonist were as much as possible the circumstances of the readers in the kind of fiction that was considered good for you, capital G, capital F, <laughs> capital Y, what the Victorians might have considered an improving novel. Diana's fiction was never improving, or if it was, it was in a way that neither the Victorians nor the 1980s editors would have recognised. Her books took things from unfamiliar angles. The dragons and demons that her heroes and heroines battle may not be the demons her readers are literally battling, but her books are unfailingly realistic in their examination of what it's like to be, or to fail to be, part of a family, the ways we fail to fit in or deal with uncaring carers. The third thing that Diana had working against her was that her books are difficult. Mm. Which doesn't mean they're not pleasurable, but she makes you work as a reader. Mm. Now, I really felt that with Fire and Hemlock. I felt I had to be on my metal, right, to get the most out of it. And while there are passages which are incredibly exciting and gripping and emotionally and are funny and all the rest of it, nonetheless, the intellectual flow of the book requires you to be on it. Is that, did you, is, is that something that you discover more as you got older when you've gone back to it? I think, I think the fact that we can reread it so frequently and never really be bored or, you know, I've read it twice. Something new. Yeah, I've read it twice this year and I, I'm, not, I'm not bored and I, it feels like a discovery. Like, I think it's so rich um, and it's dense with yeah. kind of literary allusions that yeah. obviously when you're 11 are completely lost on you. Like what? Um, uh, well, I mean, the, the fact that the whole thing is kind of based on the ballad of Tam Lin, mm. um, yeah. which, which we should talk about. Um, and the, the, the many, many books that Tom Lin sends to Polly um, yeah. are obviously uh, the kind of literal uh, literary allusions that are there. But the, this bonkers ending that uh, Andy and John are both saying that they, they sort of struggled with is um, apparently based on T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. Um, I yeah, can... Bert, Bert, Bert Norton is the beginning. Yeah. I can read a bit of it. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden, excitedly, containing laughter, Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Oh, well, he's pretty... Now I get it. <laughs> um, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's just that it's the, the, the picture, the photograph that is the kind of... The, that gives the book its title, which sort of is a kind of magical object through the book, but you're never quite... I mean, the book starts with her trying to sort of stimulate her memory by whether she gets a picture of people either putting out a fire or 
trying to get a fire to, 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 to start again and that she's never quite sure whether the, the shadowy figures in the background are, are, are real or not. It's, you're already in the, in the realm of sort of mirrors and pools and shadows and reflections, mm. which, I mean, is kind of... It, I, 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 it, you get that sort of spine-tingly thing with this book, mm. is that yeah. you're, not gonna get, you're not going to get everything the first no. time round. No, and I think there's there aren't kind of fixed readings of it. Yeah. Like I think, you know, because we talk about it, and you know, you can read it at a different point in your life and sort of see it quite differently. Absolutely, like, and find more um, kind of pat. It's I feel like it's a very patterned book. Like I feel like the themes and ideas that run through it kind of coordinate in really interesting ways. Like it sort of occurred to me reading it this time that there's a sort of echo in Polly's mother of the idea of um, Laurel, of the, the Queen of the Fairies. Yeah, mm. of, of taking, of sort of sucking, you know, kind of sucking the life out of men, of taking their lives. In a weird way, she's sort of doing that in this kind of slightly comical suburban way. And, yeah. you know, there are all these like different um, the thing about happiness, and, Polly, yeah. is yeah. you've got to go out and get it. Oh, I love oh. that. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so, 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 Ellen, you were talking about Tamlin. So this, book, so this book, so this book is a uh, is a based on the um, ballad of Tamlin, as indeed Alan Garner's Red Shift, which we sure. covered on Batlisters uh, at the start of the year, is based on Tamlin. Tamlin, uh, the legendary ballad, child ballad number thirty nine. It's associated with the reel of the same name, also known as the Glasgow reel. And we're going to do something now we've never done on Backlisted before. Uh, we are going to have a Backlisted round of University Challenge. Mm, so okay. we are going to play you a, and John, you can play along, a <gasps> setting of, this is your starter for 10. Uh, this is a performance of the Ballad of Tamlin. I want, to, I want you to tell me who is the singer. Oh. Okay, so this is your starter for 10. Here we go. She had nipped a double rose, a rose button a brain. When Uton started, young Tamlin says, Lady Alpuni Mare. Why pull ye the rose, lady, and why break ye the wand? And why come ye to Carter Hough without my command? <laughs> I, John, I, I do actually know because I listened to it. <laughs> It's one of my favourites, you and McCall. So it's you and McCall. Finger in the ear, guy. He would not thank you. He would not thank you for saying. Okay, so that was just so you you go. Congratulations, team. You we are you are now going to be played three the adaptations of the Ballad of Tamlin by late sixties or early seventies folk rock groups. In each case, I want the name of the group and the singer. Okay, so here's the first clip. He's just wanting to do this. I know. Oh, it's, it's great, great. Let's go. was a walking bright morning Across the hills so green And he scared nothing for where he'd go or nothing for where he'd be. And that is Pentangle. And the singer was <laughs> Um She 
Sheila what I can never remember her name. Sheila what's face. Jackie McShee. <laughs> Jackie McShee okay. and uh, it's the Pentangle, technically speaking, as they're building. That comes from a film of Tamlin, which we're gonna talk about in a minute. Like the doors. Like the doors. Like doors. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So okay, so that was Pentangle. Okay, uh, let's have and uh, the next one, please. How dare you pull my rose better? How dare you break my tree? How dare you come to God's home without the leave of me? Well, may I pull the rose, she said. Well, may I break the tree? For God's home is my father's, I'll ask no leave of thee. Still, I spy Maddie Pryor. That is correct. Uh, Mitchins and backlisted. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear the last one. I grew up with that. I forbid you maidens all that wear gold in your hair to travel. So that is Fairport Conventions, and the singer is the inimitable Sandy Denny. Yeah. Hooray! Oh, congratulations, you <laughs> win! Um, there's also a fantastic version by Anne Briggs. Anne Briggs, yes, yeah. Young Tamlin. Yes, indeed. And what about the Benjamin Zephaniah version? Oh, I don't know that one. Goes, it's about a girl who goes into a nightclub <laughs> and ends up having sex in a car. Um, it's great. It's oh my really god, how Search, Searching for the weed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter will have seen me talking about it with absolute rapture and disbelief. <laughs> but there is also a film adaptation of Tam Lin yep. called uh, The Devil's Widow, aka The Ballad of Tam Lin. Right. With, uh, it's uh, amongst <laughs> key elements of this 1970 adaptation. Uh, it has music by The Pentangle, as you've just heard, but it's also the only film that was ever directed. Directed by the actor Roddy McDowell, uh, oh. all filmed on location in Scotland, and it features the <laughs> incredible cast of, amongst others, Ava Gardner, Ian McShane, Stephanie Beecham, Joanna Lumley, Richard Wattis, <laughs> and the young Bruce Robinson. The, the film yeah. director Bruce Robinson, when he was still actor, is in it, is in one scene. I watched this the other day with my <laughs> with my jaw hanging open. But the thing is, it it's not. It's a quite an odd film. I think it's a bad, not no, a bad film, is it? No. Did you you watch yeah, it? Yeah, right? um, I mean, it's it's very beautiful. It's sort of that very seventies, quite campy. Lovely. Yeah, uh, Ava Gardner really camping it up in some amazing gowns. Yeah, the clothes are amazing. <laughs> I think the clothes were my highlight. Yeah, and you and McShane, you 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 yeah. <laughs> really handsome. He was. I just couldn't elegant. believe it. I was like, who'd have thought it? He was so smouldering. Yeah, he, he <laughs> smoulders. But it follows the story of the ballad. Yeah, tell us the story, because that's crucial. And because you, you, you've turned this into a play as well. Yeah, so the story um, is um, that uh, the elfin queen has um, a bit of a penchant for young men, often called Tom. And she she sort of captures them and uh, sacrifices them for eternal life. 
and an amazing young woman called Janet, or sometimes Margaret in some versions, um, hitches her skirt above her knee and um, comes and rescues Tom, but not without him having previously uh, had sex with her and impregnated her. Um, so it's it's quite a, a complex and hashtag problematic ballad. <laughs> I think we can yeah. say non-spoiler alert. Okay. I think one of those, you know, as you talk about that, Eleanor, this is one of the things that I find... I can totally, I can totally see. I've only read it once, but I can entirely see that reading it again and again would throw up all sorts of different readings because mm-hmm. that that the integration of the ballad with the fantasy elements, which are quite thrilling, with the social realist kind of breakup of the the family unit, plus then the the, the as I said, the literary task of mapping a character's adolescence from beginning to end. That's incredibly ambitious. Yeah, so Incredib- Incredibly really ambitious. Really yeah. ambitious. No, no less ambitious than what Elliot was trying to do with Four Quartets. Absolutely, I mean, I yeah. Think, and, and everything that Neil Gaiman says, I felt that strongly, is that that this, this is a kind of, because it's sort of for kids, but it isn't mm. at all. You know, this stuff tends to get... I mean, you know, Garner has suffered from this uh, as well, that, 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 you know, that the real... The, these are not... I mean, they're only incidentally for kids. I mean, I don't think mm. Diana Wynne Jones was writing for children. She's just trying to write a great novel, which I think I think she's done. It's a it's a really powerful, haunting story. I want to ask you one last question about this. What's your favourite scene in the book, or who is your favourite character in the book? Alice, you first. I was thinking about this because I feel that now. Reading it now, I feel less sympathy towards Tom, and we think, think he's. Do you feel he feel, does feel a tiny bit predatory, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a, a bit, bit groomy. He is yeah, a bit he is groomy. a bit groomy. I mean, he knows, and I, mean, I you think you wouldn't be getting away with that now, would you? No. no, and he knows he is. I think he has a. He's very. You know, I think I was very much in love with him, and probably am still to an extent but I think <laughs> that actually <laughs> I know I mean, why not I still I, yeah. I think that's real I the, think you do fall in love with oh, fictional yeah. characters and they don't you know they they, they sort of they especially do when you read it. them at that age yeah. you know and you go back Alice I was in love with Alison in the Owl Service really mm. still am a bit because that fantastic actress played her in the, yeah. in the TV who turned out to be in really naughty movies after that. <laughs> she? But um, I think that now... <clears throat> like, that. You sort of think, reading it now, you've, I feel that in some ways it, it's not a sort of, you know, it, it's a problematic relationship. And actually you think more and more her real saviours are actually Granny and... Yeah. Um, Fiona Perks. Her friend, who, I, who annoys me a bit, Fiona Perks, but... You know, they're actually the people who've kind of really got her back because Tom's sort of relationship with her is actually quite selfish. Absolutely. Um, having said that, um, uh, in defence of Tom, um, the my favourite bit of the book um, is the moment where they finally kind of come together and have this incredibly passionate snog. Um <laughs> Uh, No, this is the real snog. Oh, the real snog. Yeah, so I'm going to read it. Um, Tom put down his cello in the gateway and leaned against the left-hand pillar. Polly did not blame him for being reluctant to go in. Let's not wrangle any more, he said. I'm almost out of time. He held out a hand toward Polly. 
Polly stumbled over the cello in her hurry to get near and nearly fell against Tom's chest. They wrapped their arms round one another. Tom was more solid and limber than Polly had expected, and warmer, and just a little gawky. He threaded both hands into Polly's damp hair and kissed her eyes as well as her mouth. I've always loved your hair, he said. I know, Polly said. I mean, that kind of lovely, uh, I mean, fairy tales, right? Creepy as well as being, yeah. as well as being kind of erotic, but also, so I, I, yeah. The passion of that moment is just... Amazing. I mean, the, the pent up. So compressed and so pent economically delivered. Yeah. yeah. No, she's terrific. Well, thank you again for uh, making us read it. Yeah. Could it's you? a terrific book. Yeah, I really, never would have read this. No, absolutely. Oh, great. Another, so another, another, another backlisted, really another backlisted classic for us. It's, it's just such a, such a treat. And I will definitely go back and read it again. And you maybe should. some of the others as well. I'd love to read, having you know, watched the movie, Howl's Moving Cars. So um, I guess that's a good point for us to stop. Um, thanks to Alice Stevenson and Eleanor Cook. To our producer, Matt Hall. And thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Backlisted Pod, Facebook, Backlisted Pod, and on our page on the Unbound site, unbound.com forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, good night. I forbid you <laughs> may <laughs> all that's where gone.